Well, good morning. It is good to be here today. My name is Craig Bruninger. Um, my wife Julie and I have been in Beijing for about two years now. Um, we come from the United States and actually have spent most of our lives in Southern California where a really cold day is in the mid-50s. So, I still love this cold weather. And I'm still hoping someday I can accomplish one of my life goals, which is to shovel out a driveway with snow. So, I know those of you who live in other places laugh at me, but I like that. Well, Christmas is done. And again, we have many cultures and traditions here, so I'm, I'm just going to be reflective of mine, which might be some of yours. In uh, my particular culture, um, the 25th is the big celebration. The tree goes up at the beginning of December, and kind of everybody is done with this by January 1st, and you might have everything packed up by then. Now, now some of your traditions, you, you set everything up on Christmas Eve, and you keep it for a month. So. That is also wonderful, but my talk, my traditions. So, it is now time to put baby Jesus back in the box. So, I asked them to, uh, to keep the nativity scene up here in extra week. So, um, Christmas Day is over, so the shepherds have to go. And uh, the animals have to go. Um, the angel, that was Christmas Day. The angel goes. Uh, animals. Uh, thankfully, we don't have a stable, or that would have to go. Uh, the manger has to go, but it's attached to Jesus. So we're going to keep him. And so we have Mary, Joseph, and three wise men, and we're going to get rid of one of them. Okay, now we're done with Christmas Day because all of that stuff happened on Christmas Day. The, uh, the, the, the wise men were, were not there on Christmas Day. Um, it's been my personal crusade my whole life to try to clean this up, but I have never found a nativity set that offers you an appropriate Jewish house that Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus can be in when the wise men come. So, the wise men probably did not make it to see Jesus till he was around a year old. It says, when the wise men came, they came to the house, not a stable, they came to the house to see Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And it also says they were wise men, plural, magi. It doesn't say they're kings, and it doesn't say there's three. There could have been three. So, we three kings of Orion are... Um, just another example, don't believe everything you sing. Uh, so we don't know. There, there could have been three. There's more than one. And uh, for the sake of accuracy and 
Since I'm a teacher, I'm going to leave two up here to help break you of a sloppy habit of saying there are three. They were not kings. They were wise men. They were astrologers. They read the stars. They provided help and counsel to the king. That was their job. They, they were pagan. They were not Jewish. They, they were from somewhere, perhaps, in current uh, Iraq, Iran, uh, old Babylon, perhaps. We don't know that. We just know that they came after a while to see the baby Jesus. So, uh, today we, uh, we are going to be looking at the wise men coming to Jesus. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be spending some time in Matthew 1 and 2. So the king has come. We sing those songs. King Jesus has come. Uh, away in a manger, joy to the world. Oh, come let us adore him. And, uh, and now we're done and we're going to move on. So... Um, I met a new friend last week, and I asked her if she would come up and help me today. So, this is Olivia. I met her a couple weeks ago, and that's, this last week, Julie and I were able to watch her for a few hours. It was marvelous. Is she not adorable? She is. I'm sorry. Here. You didn't say yes over here. Is she not adorable? <laughs> yes, she is. Okay. Um, I can make her smile almost any time I want. And while she was with us, I had her smiling all the time, and I put her to sleep twice. I was practicing today's talk. <laughs> so, I think, I think she likes me more than Julie does. I mean, I think she likes me more than Julie. There. That is an ambiguous statement. I, I, let me, I think she likes me more than she likes Julie. The other statement, I think she likes, she, she likes me more than Julie likes me, is a little problematic, but <laughs> there are days this is probably true. So, here we have this adorable baby. She is... Uh, three, four months, three months, okay, a good size, three months. Probably Jesus was a little older than this, but uh, Olivia said she'd, she would do it. So, Olivia is here, and she's really cute, and she's really adorable, and we all just see her and go, aw, like that. However, eventually, she's not going to inspire those same feelings when you look at her, okay? What do you say? Give her 13 years, and maybe sometimes when you look at her, you won't just go, oh, she's so adorable. Or, or maybe just two years. <laughs> or, or maybe two minutes. I better talk fast. Actually, 
when she's 13, she's not supposed to inspire the same feelings of adoring as she does now. Because right now she's calm, she's quiet. She has no particular plan of her own, will of her own. She can't go places, she can't argue about things. She will pretty much do what she's told, and most of the time she'll just look pretty darn cute. But you don't want that in your 13-year-old. By the time they're 13, you're hoping they start to have a mind of their own, they have their own identity, they, they're learning things, they have legitimate disagreements with you, they're starting to gather a sense of purpose and want to do things that maybe are not your first choice but are not wrong, and that's very appropriate. In other words, you, you lose the, oh, just so adorable, and you're supposed to. But then there's another element of this baby Jesus adorable and Olivia adorable. I, uh, I thought since you all agreed, and I figured you would, that she's adorable. And uh, so I told my wife, I said, so I'm going to have us, we're going to all sing, Oh, come let us adore her together. And Julie said, no, you can't do that. That's blasphemous. These people don't know you yet. So, we're not going to sing, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Her. But I, I would say this. Maybe that would be awkward and you would refuse to sing it. Maybe you would say, well, that is kind of blasphemous. You can't say. And I would like to say, my question is, when you sing to Jesus 20, 30 times, who knows how long you did that in December, Oh, come let us adore him. What did you mean? Did you mean cute baby Jesus? Did you mean the cute little couple and young Mary and the baby and in the manger and new life and he's so cute? Oh, let's adore the cute little baby. Because if so, maybe you have missed something. Thank you, Olivia. So, the king has come. We all agree with that. But there's the next question we have to ask. The king has come, so what? That's our question now. We all agree Jesus was born. We all agree the king has come. The king has come, so what? Now, I, I've spent much of my life working with teenagers and young adults. So, I learned long ago that English, contrary to what we say, English is a tonal language. And I love this phrase, so what? Because I, I think the tones give you radically different responses. The king has come, so what? The king has come, so what? I would say the most common term of so what is with an exclamation point, like, big deal, I don't care. The king has come. So what is the question this morning that I would like for us to look at? Well, this is appropriate also because I learned something just a few years ago, since I did not grow up in a, what we might call high church or a liturgical church with a lot of old customs. A couple years ago, I learned besides Christmas, there was something called the celebration of Epiphany. I never even knew that. Some of you maybe grew up that way. Epiphany. Now, I had used that word before because the meaning of the word 
Epiphany is a sudden and profound understanding of something. That, that's what an epiphany is. It's a, oh, I get it. That's epiphany. Oh, I see. Sometimes we say an epiphany is a blinding flash of the obvious. That's those times we get something and we, we don't get why we didn't get it before. For a number of years, I taught in a Christian school and we had a dress code and the dress code consisted of you didn't have to buy this particular brand of clothes, school dress clothes, but if you bought another brand, it had to look exactly like everything that was there. And uh, it, many of the girls in the polo shirt, the polo shirts were guy-girl, same kind of shirt, they just hung on you and bam, and, and girls did not like that. So they were forever buying longer sleeves, cap sleeves, six buttons, two buttons, which technically was wrong and occasionally they would get in trouble and so on. And I remember one day, that particular year, I was the dean of the high school, I did behavior issues, and, and Deidre came up to me, who was a very vivacious girl, and she said, Mr. B, look! And I said, okay, and she said, I'm legal! These are legal, this is a legal shirt! And I said, well, good! And she says, and you know what I discovered? It's like, it's so fun to go to school not worrying if you're going to get busted about your shirt. I'm going, to, I'm going to wear the right clothes every day now. That's an epiphany for her. Instead of wrestling, deciding which of the 12 different styles of illegal clothes she was going to wear and should she risk it and should she not, and she just had five colors and chose one of the five and didn't worry all day. That would be an epiphany. We could have said, hello, you could have learned that before. But for her, it was like a brand new thing, epiphany. Well, epiphany is also a church tradition. And in the church tradition, it commemorates the revealing of Jesus as the Christ to the Gentiles in the persons of the Magi. So the Magi, the wise men, represent the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And Epiphany is celebrating their visit to Jesus because that was the revealing of a new plan, which was Messiah was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that is a celebration. Uh, traditionally, uh, in a lot of traditions, it's... Um, January 6th, last Wednesday. In fact, last Wednesday night, I was talking with friends in Spain, and I say, you know, hey, what do they do for the Epiphany there? And he says, it's the thing. Many families, Epiphany is when you get all your gifts because the kings bring them to you, and they have a parade, and they throw candy to the kids. And so that is, and a couple of years ago, I didn't even know that, that that, that was a church tradition in some views, a celebration of epiphany, which is a celebration of the realization the Messiah was for the Gentiles, of which most of us are. That is something to celebrate. Within the expanse of the celebration, some, especially in Orthodox churches, they celebrate epiphany at the baptism of Jesus. And that point is, the baptism of Jesus is God revealing to the world 
here is my son. That's why it's also called Epiphany and celebrated. A very significant point at Jesus' baptism when God says, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. So, we are celebrating Epiphany today. We have a problem with very familiar stories. Those of us who were raised in a church setting, and we, we just know all the stories. I was. I knew all the stories. How many times have we gone through the Christmas story? It is really hard to get something new out of stories. So how can, and, and, and part of the problem is, the, the traditional story we give contains inaccuracies. Because, you know, the wise men were not there in the stable. They, they were not there that night. They just weren't. Sorry. And you say, well, what difference does it make? Well, in one way, it, it, it's not bad that if they showed up that night, they could have still worshipped. But the problem is, when we do that, when we take Bible stories out of context, we, we miss the meaning that the writer wanted to have in that context. So, we are going to look at the Christmas story, but just Matthew... Matthew had a purpose when he wrote down what he decided to write down for the Christmas story. So, in Matthew 2, let me... read the wise men's story. So this is Matthew 2, and uh, let's start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. And so there we have the traditional story of the Magi. And you've heard that before, and, and it's true. It happened. But if we really would like to know, now, what is Matthew's point in sharing that? Because Matthew decided not to talk about John the Baptist, like Luke did. He decided not to talk about Mary getting a visitor from heaven. He decided not to talk about the night of the birth. He decided not to talk about the stables. He, he decided not to talk about any of those things. He knew about him, I'm sure. He had a reason. 
So we need to look at the context. So look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew starts with a genealogy, which generally is tremendously boring to us. I was tempted to read it just to give my translator a workout. <laughs> but I'm already on the edge of... Uh, putting people to sleep, so we won't do that. So, Matthew says, do you know how I want to start this whole book I'm writing? I'm starting it with this statement. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, as we look at the point of the king has come, we're going to look at three parts of the king coming. Number one is cha in chapter one is the resume of the king, the qualifications of the king. The king Messiah who was coming was going to have to have the right resume. He was going to have to have the right pedigree. He was going to have to have the right qualifications. He was going to have to be a descendant, a legal descendant of King David. Because God told a few times, 1 Samuel 7, one of them, that you're going to have a descendant who is going to end up reigning forever. So if you're going to present a king, you've got to start and say, he's got the right resume. Here it is. He has the qualifications. And so Matthew does that. That's where he begins. And he starts with Abraham and moves on down and comes to King David. In fact, someone has said if, when you look at the, the birth story of Jesus and Matthew and you say there were three kings, it's like, well, no, actually, there's more than a dozen kings in this whole story because there's a long list of kings and David and Solomon and so on. And so Matthew starts by saying, I'm going to present Jesus as king. And the first thing I have to do is tell you, he is qualified according to his genealogy. He is qualified according to his relationship with King David that he could really be the king, the Messiah, who will rule and reign forever. Matthew makes that statement. He clarifies that. And he finishes by saying that the line ends with uh, Joseph, who was the legal father of Jesus, which meant legally then he was in the line of King David. He was not the biological child of Joseph, but he was the legal child of Joseph. So Joseph's line was Jesus' line, and Jesus qualifies to be the king. And Matthew goes to great lengths to document the genealogy to prove that. Well, what about the reason for a king? Matthew wants to give us a reason for the king as well. He's not real interested in a lot of details of the birth, but on in chapter 1 as we continue down in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, if 
When you read that general statement, you would expect, okay, well, he has to talk about the shepherds and Mary and John the Baptist, and he has to talk about all those things because this is how the birth of Jesus came about. Well, no, what is he interested in? He is in the birth, interested in the birth of King Jesus. He is interested in proving this child who is born has a legitimate right and is the king. He doesn't care too much about the specifics of how this happened. So he's only going to talk about Joseph directly here. Why? Because Joseph is the key. He's the legitimate legal father of Jesus. Joseph has to stay there so that Jesus is in that direct line. And so when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, really awkward for him, he just is going to quietly step away from that, which would be what a righteous man would do, until he gets a visit. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And again, if you know the full story, you come back here and you start to see how precise God was. He didn't send Jesus, Savior, to save his people from Roman occupation, to save them from injustice, to save them from oppression. This king has come to save people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he's done until he gets to the king or the wise men's arrival. So what is he shown? This is about kings, about a legitimate king. See, he's legitimate according to his birth line. This is about a legitimate king. He's legitimate according to an angel of God saying, this Jesus is miraculously going to be born of Mary, and you're going to call his name Jesus because the reason why Jesus is coming is to save people from their sins. And a way of summarizing the presence of this king is God is now with us. That's the resume of the king. That's the reason for the king. And now we're left with a question which Matthew goes into and which we then are going to be asking ourselves. You can ask yourself as we go. What about the response to the king? We're going to be looking at some of the questions that have to do response to the king. Number one, one response to the king is worship. That's one response. The wise men were studying the stars. Because they believed you could learn many things in the stars about the world and how it works. Was that a foolish belief of theirs? No. It was not a foolish presupposition, a foolish assumption. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Look to the heavens. Would you like to learn about God? Search the heavens. 
Now, they had abused that and began to put their trust in reading the heavens, trust in the stars and in other things. But they were searching for truth in the heavens. And while doing that, searching for truth, and obviously they would need to be very familiar with normal star work and everything, they finally came and noticed somehow Matthew doesn't tell us. Somehow, reading the stars, it said, the king of the Jews has been born. That's what it said. And they said, we must go and worship this king. And they started out on a journey to do that. Now, we know they ended up bowing down and worshiping Jesus. And what I'm interested in is, are there characteristics we could see that help them to end up bowing down and worshiping Jesus? I'm, hey, I'm an American. Who cares who your parents were? You just earn what, you know, it doesn't matter how you were born, you gotta earn it. You wanna be president, you, you gotta earn it, okay? And I'll respect you when you earn it. Well then, if that's how you believe, you don't bow down and worship babies. They haven't earned anything. So what? They had good parents. Hey, they got to earn it themselves. Maybe some of you from other government traditions have more of a stirring in your heart that when the king has a son, you go, wow, there he is, the king. You are the king already. Probably most of us don't feel that way. So how do you end up worshiping a baby? And, and what is worship anyway? Worship entails acknowledging that something has great worth. Olivia has great worth. Why? She didn't earn it because she is created in the image of God and God loves her. That's her great worth. I worship God for that, not her. But you would worship something and say, you are worthy of everything I have. Thus, the very expensive gifts. Thus, you have a posture of submission before a baby. How humiliating. And how did they end up with that kind of relationship with this baby? Because they were looking for truth. They were pursuing truth. They were looking. And when they saw something that caught their attention, they then pursued that. They said, there is a king of the Jews born. Let's travel. Weeks, months probably. They traveled. They pursued it. They didn't know where they were going. They went to the logical place. You go to the capital of the Jews. You go to Jerusalem. And you say, we're here. We are here. We saw it. We saw it. We, we saw a star weeks, months ago. And that meant that the, the baby was born. There's a new king we want to go worship. And of course, nobody in Jerusalem knew what they were talking about. Herod didn't know. So he called the, the leaders, the religious leaders, and said, uh, uh, this king, Messiah, where is he supposed to be born? Do we know? I have any clue. And they said, of course we do. Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew that. Everybody knows that. Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So they were sent to find this king and worship and then report back to Herod so he could worship as well. And as they left Jerusalem, we don't know what it was, somehow the star reappeared and it directed them to a single house. And they were overjoyed. And they worshipped. 
because their worship of baby Jesus was the consummation of a pursuit and a desire of their life. The consummation of that. That's why when they got there, they were ready to fall down and put their hope and their trust and humble themselves before this baby. That is one response to the king we can worship. Another response to the king coming we see in Herod. Herod's response was not one of worship of Jesus. Herod's response was one of hostility to Jesus. And as soon as Herod heard there was a king, then Herod, who was very, very jealous and very passionate about his own kingdom, he said, this cannot be. So he told the wise men, as soon as you find, come back so I may worship him. Well, actually, Herod was going to do worship. Herod was going to perform his worship ceremonies because he worshiped himself. He worshiped his power. He worshiped his position. So he also was worshipful. It just was not going to be of this baby king. And if we'd go on and read, which rarely do we, which is after Herod figured out the wise men weren't coming back, he went to Bethlehem and he had all male children two years of age and under killed. Those who know these things said probably a dozen to two dozen, actually, babies in that community were killed. That's what Herod did. Over the top, Herod, I mean, like, really, the guy must have been a mental case, right? Like, hello, it's a baby for crying out loud. Actually, the wise men and Herod had it right. This baby, if it really was claiming to be a king, you either worship it or you destroy it. Herod made perfect sense. His response was a wise response in the competition between kings. You annihilate the opposition. I was... Uh, teaching a class that had to do with worldviews and events in the world in probably the very late 90s, maybe 2000. Uh, this is before the Taliban in Afghanistan achieved general fame. But in reading up on them, um, an incident happened about that time. Uh, they arrested uh, a group, one of the aid groups that came in to help the people that they allowed. And they arrested this group of Afghanis and maybe a half dozen or more foreigners, of, of which at least two were Americans, two young women. And so they were arrested and they were charged with capital crimes. They were charged with insurrection. They were charged with crimes that would result in the death penalty. And the response in the U.S. press was generally... Wait a minute. Okay, so they had copies of the Jesus film. Come on. And they had some literature about Jesus. That's all they had. This is like really over the top. And I would say that was the general tenor of news and even in church discussions. It was like, look at those terrible people. They're just, wow, they, they, they are savages. Their point was, if this Jesus stuff comes, if Jesus starts reigning here, then we can't. 
It made sense. It made sense. Sometimes I think we're, we're foolish because, and, and I think hopefully we can grow out of it, especially in the United States as Christians, we're just foolish thinking, oh, come on, can't we all get along? I'm just, it's Christian, it's no big deal. Okay, you don't believe, that's fine. And actually in reality, the presence and claim of Jesus as king trumps and oversees all governments. Now, at this time, as Jesus told Pilate, this is not the time where we're taking over government. So, no, that's not the fight for now. But the idea that if you go the Jesus route, it changes everything is accurate. In American history, in the last hundred years or so, there was a guy named John Dewey. Not the guy that figured out the library system, okay? It's a different one. He was a government official in the federal government that made a huge impact in the education program in America, got the federal government very involved. Before schools were just run by locals, he worked very hard in the early part of, of the 1900s and into the 30s to get the federal government involved in schools. And one of his objectives was to get religion out of schools. Well, like, was he just... A mean person? I mean, like, what was his, here was his reason. He said, the democratic ideal cannot coexist with any supernatural beliefs, especially Christianity. The democratic ideal cannot coexist with supernatural beliefs. He's right. It can't. The democratic ideal says, how do we know right and wrong? We vote on it. We have a Supreme Court vote, and if it's four to five, then the five wins, and this is now right. That's the democratic ideal. What's the right way to be? We'll vote on it. And guess what? We're back in the garden. Who gets to determine good and evil? And the very first sin of Adam and Eve we still struggle with today. Do the people get to determine good and evil? So yeah, Christianity in its pure form, subjected to King Jesus, is going to cause problems for all other forms of governments and leadership who think they can control it. It doesn't make Herod's response right, but it makes sense. And if you'd like to reach people like Herod in attitude, then maybe acknowledging what they are acknowledging in a more precise way and engaging in a discussion about that might be helpful. Well, there's a third response to the king that we see here, and it is the response of indifference. Indifference. Here we have three, four, five, six, we have in their entourage, we have this huge caravan coming in Jerusalem saying, we've been traveling for months to see your king. It stirred everybody up. Herod says, well, where is this Messiah? And, and the priests and the Pharisees said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then Herod said, okay, wise men, go to Bethlehem, come back and tell us. And that was it. No one else went to Bethlehem. The priests didn't go. The scribes didn't go. The people who knew where the Messiah would be born, the people who said they wanted the Messiah, the people who said they were waiting for the Messiah, the people who said they would study scriptures, who were trying to live a good life so they'd be ready for all of those people who said all of these things about the Messiah, we can hardly wait for the Messiah to come, please come, please come. 
When someone said something big has happened in the heavens that says your king is here, they did not think it worth pursuing. They knew the answer. They had the knowledge. They had a lifestyle that, that, was, that was according to the law as God had given the Jews. Their lifestyle was that way. But when it came to the question, are you so eagerly desiring the Messiah that you want to know the Messiah, that you will pursue? What do you think? And their response was, eh, we'll just wait till the wise men get back. You know, someone has said that, uh, we usually would say hatred is the opposite of, of love. I'm not sure. Maybe indifference is more of an opposite of love. You don't care enough to hate. What was going on in the lives of these religious leaders who their whole life was dedicated to Jewish principles and waiting for the Messiah to come? Something had happened. Probably, well, we know other places in Scripture, there were other people who claimed to be Messiah. A couple of them are mentioned. You know, they are, I'm the Messiah, and then the Romans killed him, and they were gone. So probably that had happened before. Other people had said the Messiah, and they'd been burned before. Probably they were leaders, and they had a decent lifestyle, and it was okay, and they were getting along with Herod. They hated him, but they got along with him. They hated the Romans, got along with him, and... And really, do you want to go to this Messiah that's going to disrupt your life as you now know it? You're suspicious, it just might. Indifference. The worship of self. Herod worshipped himself blatantly. The Jewish leaders worshipped themselves which means uh, I'm not really motivated to get the effort to go over there. Indifference is dangerous. In many years in pastoral work, a couple who has a big fight and comes in, in one sense, is in a less dangerous place than a couple who never has any fights because they become indifferent to each other. They're business partners. They don't talk. They don't argue, but they don't really talk. They've given up indifference. And the hanging question here, since most of you here probably aren't trying to squash Christianity, aren't trying to squash out Jesus, then which camp are you in? Is it the camp of indifference. Well, how do you know that? Well, have you looked for Jesus lately? It was about five or six miles to walk to Bethlehem from Jerusalem. Not a terrible walk. Have you looked for Jesus lately? If you haven't, then that's kind of in accord with being relatively indifferent. Well, yeah, I want the Jesus to come, and, you know, when other people bring him to me, that's why I go to church. Hopefully they bring Jesus to me. Oops, didn't do a good job today, church. I don't feel Jesus. For those of you who are believers, God's children, 
And if you look at your life and your patterns, these men were looking in the stars to learn things. You get to look in the stars and learn about God. You get to look in the Word of God, and you get to meet Jesus. You get to search for Jesus. He's not easily found all the time. I, I have to say that. I, I just like, wow, I don't get that, or I don't understand this. But the question is, what characterizes your life? Is it a dedicated, costly pursuit of what you think is the king who's coming, and if you happen to be right, you want to be there to offer your worship to him. Or, you know things, you believe, you know a lot about the Bible, but practically speaking, you don't discomfort yourself very much looking for the Jesus. There's our question there. Matthew goes on and uh, talking about the presentation of this king and we are out of time. So, I am, I'm, I'm going to just give you a couple sentences of highlights. We did Matthew 1, we did Matthew 2. Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist, and at the end of the John, John the Baptist scenario, he baptizes Jesus. And at, when Jesus is baptized, God speaks from heaven, this is my son, I am pleased with him. Another inauguration of the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 4, he gets tested and tempted by the enemy, Satan. And how does Satan tempt him? Hey, I have kingdoms. How would you like them? I'm going to give them to you, he says. All you have to do is worship me. And I think Jesus cited scripture, you don't worship anybody by God, but I think he had another understanding inside, and that is, why would I give anything to you for what is rightfully mine? I already am king of this world. It just is not exhibited yet. And what's the key mocking point at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus? Ha, you're the king. Oh, yeah, here he is, king of the Jews on the cross. Here's Jesus, king of the Jews. If your king come down. Matthew keeps this theme. He talks about the kingdom of God. And then Matthew ends at the end of chapter 28. Let me read this. And then we will be finished. How does Matthew end his book? We know how he starts his book. In Matthew 28, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The book starts with only pagan Gentiles worshipping Jesus as God. The book ends with a small group of believers who see Jesus and worship him. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. So Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. It had been given to him when he was born. He just spent 30 years exercising that authority to make it evident he has all authority. And then he says, you go. 
go to the Gentile nations and make disciples. The first Gentiles came to see. Come and see, God said. Come and see. Come and see. And at the end of the book, Matthew says, now it's changed for those of us who are believers. Now it's go and tell. Go and tell. Where do you go? To the whole world. And what's his final promise? The final promise is, I will be with you always, even to the end. And Matthew starts his book by saying, guess who's coming? Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew ends his book by saying, guess who's with you as you go? God with you, Emmanuel. May you think on these things. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending word. Thank you for sending truth. Now may your spirit work in our hearts. May our eyes be open. May we pursue and be able to willingly come and pursue and find and worship you through worshiping Jesus. For your glory, amen.